Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today... There's all kinds of extreme uh, complaints and concerns being expressed that this is going to lead to the end of the working world as we know it. Described as the most expansive change to Australia's industrial relations since the Fair Work Act of 2009, could the closing loops bill be the end of work as we know it? Also coming up on the program... Oh, well, she she just asked me if I was OK, which was funny because I was asking her if she was OK. Um, but she just kind of got up and she was completely fine. Like <laughs> E-scooters' escapades have been causing havoc throughout Australia. But with Sydney behind in trialling e-scooters, many are questioning whether oppositions to the vehicle by decision makers is an over-exaggeration. Stay tuned for all of this and more coming up on The Wire. A mass doxing of 600 members of a private Jewish WhatsApp group has spurred the federal government into action. Attorney General Mark Dreyfus is attempting to respond to the leakers by having the e-commissioner intervene. We've already got some provisions uh, through the e-safety commissioner uh, that enable online platforms to be required to take down. Uh, We've seen the e-safety commissioner not only sending takedown notices but imposing penalties. Dominic Giles asked Dr Carolyn McKay, Senior Research Fellow and Co-Director of the Sydney Institute of Criminology at the University of Sydney, just what is doxing? Doxing basically stands for dropping documents and how it is achieved. It's primarily about publishing private information about people online. Um, And it seems like it covers quite a sort of spectrum of types of behaviour. People can be doing it to harass people, um, to you know, intimidate and humiliate people. Uh, it can also go through to some very serious, more hate speech kind of um, reasons for doing this. Um, it, it also can perhaps be done um, about people in relation to you know people having an idea about vigilantism, um, the notion that um, you can be a vigilante online. So it's basically, as I said, it's about publishing private information about people, for example, their name, their address, you know, where they live, where they work. This is behaviour that's been occurring for quite a long time, to my knowledge, at least a decade, basically ever since we've had social media and uh, the internet there have been... Is there any reason why this specific doxing event has gotten Canberra's attention? Different forms of behaviours of doxing and they've often sort of targeted celebrities... Um, often targeting women as well. But I guess in this, this current instance, it's occurring because of, you know, it's got heightened media attention because of the tensions in the Middle East at the moment and also because of the number of people involved. It's really vague at the moment, but do you have any ideas of what new anti-doxing legislation could possibly look like? I haven't 
um, seen a draft of anything. I think it's way too early and speculative to know exactly what's going on. But we already do have some legislation that potentially captures this type of behaviour. So, for example, in uh, New South Wales, we've got the Crimes, Domestic and Personal Violence Act, and there's Section 7 in that which talks about intimidation and that actually includes behaviours that can be categorised as cyber bullying. But there isn't anything that specifically targets doxing per se that I'm aware of. And I guess I would just urge caution in how this is um, going to be actually drafted to make sure it's kind of in a way not too specific. I think um, broad Offences are the ones that can be um, more workable and more operational um, that can actually lead to actual prosecutions if that's what we want. Um, But I would also urge caution about adding to the catalogue of criminal offences because sometimes these behaviours can perhaps be better dealt with um, through better education, better control by social media platforms. You've spoken a lot about education. My question is, how does one protect themselves from doxing? Or maybe better yet, how does someone practice digital hygiene? In terms of your digital presence, look, it's extremely difficult. Um, And I think you've got to be aware of how much personal information you put out there. But of course, if you're being doxed by someone, it may may well be someone who actually knows you very well. And so even if you've got sort of good so-called digital hygiene, if they know where you live, you know, through your personal IRL existence, of course they can make that public online as well. So, yeah, it's it's a difficult one to know exactly how to ever avoid uh, this type of behaviour. But I guess just in terms of being on social media, being online... It's always being aware of how much personal information you're sharing, what are your privacy settings, um, you know, how can you sort of set those so that things can't necessarily be seen so easily by other people. I guess on the flip side too, it's also being aware of how we deal with each other online and being responsible and respectful when you're, um, you know, interacting with other people online. All of this sort of begs the question... Is there such thing as a private space on the internet? I think it's very difficult and I I think you can sort of see with this particular instance this notion of having a closed um, network, uh, whether that's on WhatsApp or, you know, any other sorts of uh, platform. Um, Yeah, I think you've got to be really careful and I guess always be aware that whatever you put out there, (laughs) even if it's an allegedly a closed um, space, it may find its way out of that closed space and may be revealed to others. So private space online, I think, is a very fraught one. Dr Carolyn McKay, Senior Research Fellow and Co-Director of the Sydney Institute of Criminology at the University of Sydney, speaking there with Dominic Giles. Whenever I want to catch up with current affairs in Australia, I head to thewire.org.au or I follow them on Twitter. I just search for The Wire Radio, all one word. And yes, they're on Facebook too. Labor's closing loopholes bill passed the Senate on Thursday, supported by Labor the Greens, Lydia Thorpe and David Pocock, among others. It's the most expansive change to Australia's industrial relations landscape since the Fair Work Act of 2009. 
Olivia Bowie asked Dr. Jim Stanford, Director of the Centre for Future Work at the Australia Institute, what changes from the closing loopholes bill will have the greatest impact for employees and employers? There's a whole range of changes in this legislation that together are going to be a big step in addressing the problem of insecure work. Just to be honest, uh, Olivia, that's a very small part of the whole of the whole uh, bill. I, 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 Maybe I should jump into the biggest topic then, um, okay. which is probably, was it, was it right to disconnect might be the biggest mm. aspect of the well, bill? The right to disconnect provisions in this bill have attracted a lot of attention because it's a, a first step to addressing a problem that, in a way, we're all experiencing. It seems that it's harder and harder to escape work. The provisions in the law itself are pretty modest. Uh, all it does is it, uh, it gives workers protection against being punished or penalized or dismissed because they didn't answer an email from their boss uh, in the evening or over the weekend. The bill still leaves room for employers to contact workers out of hours uh, for any kind of reasonable operational requirement. Uh, it's a pretty modest step, but I think it will be significant culturally because it is, in a way, putting a, a flag in the sand to say, look, if you're a business, you're hiring workers, that doesn't mean you have access to them 24-7, uh, seven days a week. They do have a right to turn off and get on and enjoy their lives. Could there be unintended consequences to the right to disconnect? But the provisions of this law are very incremental and, frankly, very modest. There are some old-school thinkers, you know, mostly of the baby boom generation, who somehow see this provision as a betrayal of, uh, you know, the Australian work ethic. But um, they've got to kind of keep up with the times here. Technology has changed, and uh, there are new ways that work creeps into our lives. The new bill states a right for casual employees to request for a permanent position. What requirements or processes will be involved for upgrading to a permanent position? Are there certain standards that must be met? The uh, right of workers who are hired as casual to request a a permanent job rather than a casual job already exists. All this legislation does is makes it a a little bit clearer and a little bit easier uh, for workers to request that conversion uh, if they think they they would prefer it. So, um, first of all, the bill includes a new definition of um, what constitutes casual work. Uh, and makes it clearer that uh, casual work is supposed to be for situations where you work either irregular hours or you're working for um, uh, some kind of uh, limited, time-limited period. You aren't a permanent regular employee. But we have seen thousands of businesses misuse casual employees uh, to perform normal, regular, ongoing functions, and that's not what casual employment was meant to be for. I do not expect it will have a major impact on the incidence of casual employment in Australia. Uh, But again, I think it at least clarifies. And the final question is, um, with the creation of this bill, there has been discussion on definitions a lot, also defining different types of businesses, distinguishing small business and big business. What types of businesses might be most affected by the bill? Some of the definitional detail in this bill has been very, very important, and it reflects the failure of previous legislation to even define what a worker is. Uh, So, for example, uh, recent high court decisions have basically said that uh, for employers, they can define someone as a contractor uh, rather than an employee just with the stroke of a pen. If I call you a contractor, you're a contractor. 
And uh, even if the person is working regular hours under the direct control of the uh, main business, like any employee would. And that stroke of the pen matters because all of a sudden, if they're employees uh, no longer and now they're contractors, they're not guaranteed minimum wage. They're not guaranteed uh, all the other normal protections and entitlements that workers get because, in theory, you know, they're their own little business, their own contractor. The businesses who will be most affected by it are businesses who've been trying to use the previous loopholes in labor law to get around basic rights and entitlements like minimum wage. If you are already paying the minimum wage and treating your worker as a worker, as a business, you've got nothing to worry about from this legislation. Mm. But if you thought you could avoid any of those normal costs of doing business just by changing somebody's name from worker to contractor, well, uh, now you're going to have to pay a bit more attention. There's still lots of scope to use contractors and use casual workers and uh, contact workers on the weekend. But uh, employers will just have to be a bit more thoughtful uh, before they do any of those practices. Is this the most dramatic change we've seen in legislation to industrial relations? Well, as usual, in the realm of industrial relations uh, legislation, uh, there's all kinds of extreme uh, complaints and concerns being expressed that this is going to lead to the end of the working world as we know it. And really, these are incremental changes that uh, just, I think, reflect the changes in technology and the changes in our economy And that is not a dramatic change at all. Dr. Jim Stanford, Director of the Centre for Future Work at the Australia Institute, speaking there with Olivia Bowie. Hey there, I'm Hamish McDonald. Around Australia, you're listening to The Wire. Take it easy. The 2024 Indonesian election voting will begin tomorrow. Current President Yoko Widodo, in office for 10 years, is no longer eligible for another term. His son Gibran, though, is running as vice president to Prabowo Subianto, the frontrunner who previously ran against Widodo twice. Rock Forrester asked Emeritus Professor Greg Feely from the Australian National University why Indonesia's presidential election is so important. The stakes are high because... The likely winner, the very likely winner, is an ex-general called Prabowo Subianto, who Mm -hmm. has a record, certainly a proven record, of human rights abuses, but also uh, has had a reputation as a very authoritarian, intimidating kind of figure, not necessarily friendly towards democracy. There are three main candidates, but Prabowo is the front-runner running with Joko Widodo's son, is there likely to be a runoff election as Prabowo's campaign is trying to avoid this? Yes, so at the moment it looks like Prabowo might just win enough votes tomorrow to uh, secure victory in a single round. Most of the polls have him in the low 50% range, 51, 52%. Mm -hmm. Um, They have a margin of error of about 2.5%, so that even if the polls were accurate he could still lose. But the chances are that he will have a narrow victory tomorrow. His trajectory has been rising again, having flattened out uh, about a month ago. It's rising again, which suggests that people are liking the kind of campaigning that he's doing. So uh, more likely than not, he will secure a single-round victory. Um, If he loses, it will be a very narrow loss. Uh, and that will mean that the runoff um, uh, election will be held on the 26th of June. Okay. And 
speaking of that, like, what are the major issues with the campaign? So really, one of the key issues for Prabowo, the matter that made him by far the front-runner, is his continuity agenda. He has spent the last four years cultivating Jokowi's support and praising Jokowi at every turn. Social media and technology have played a big part in this campaign. Would you say that that is an aid or is it a detriment to the, uh, the democratic process in Indonesia? So we can see the influence of um, social media, um, but the depth is another matter. A lot of it has been really built around very clever imaging and particularly attempts to soften Prabowo's um, image as this, um, you know, hard man of yeah. uh, Indonesian politics. Uh, the way he dresses, the fact that he has these supposedly cute dance moves <laughs> and he's seen being very approachable, almost cuddly. These these kinds of... Um, uh, this kind of image-making has had a real impact on how people view him. And it's helped to wash away some of the doubts about um, his past and what is the true nature of his personality. So I suspect that many of those younger voters who are voting for Prabowo are voting on an image rather than necessarily the substance of what he's talking about. Considering that Indonesia is the world's largest Muslim nation by population, it's in quite a unique position to be a democracy compared to some other Islamic nations. And I'm wondering if you think there might be a specific, unique reason that it's been able to avoid a more autocratic form of government. Well, in actual fact, truth to tell, Indonesia is less democratic now than it was a decade ago. Um, It's still a democracy, but it's not a full democracy. So it's Ah, experienced democratic reversal. And uh, Jokowi has been one part of that. In the last couple of years, he's actually done things that have quite significantly undermined the quality of um, democracy. He's had lots of help. There's a lot of people in the political elite, uh, in the business elite, who are happy to um, to collude with um, with the president in bringing about kind of less demo- semi-democratic outcomes rather than mm. fully democratic outcomes. Now, the role of religion in that, if we go back to when Indonesia transitioned from the authoritarian Sahara regime and held its first election in 1999, a lot of progressive Muslim intellectuals were a big part of that smooth transition because they said that Islam, that democracy is compatible with Islam, that this is part of Indonesia's tradition. They supported the democratic process. Many of them positioned themselves as pluralist figures rather than as kind of more exclusive Islamist figures. So, yeah, religion is a a part of the reason for Indonesia's successful democratic transition. It's also been one of the factors that's been winding back Indonesia's democracy. Not in a dramatic way, but it's been a contributing factor. Emeritus Professor Greg Feely, specialist in Indonesian politics and Islam at the ANU College of Asia and Pacific, speaking there with Rock Forrester. E-scooter trials have recently commenced in Sydney following the lead of other Aussie capitals such as Melbourne and Brisbane. This comes after strong opposition of city councils and the state government based on concerns for congestion and rising hospital visits. 
However, many argue this opposition to the vehicle is misplaced and city planning and infrastructure needs to be addressed. James Montemayor has the story. They say there is no wrong turns, only unexpected corners. But 24-year-old Sydney local Callahan's daily e-scooter commute to work was exactly that. And uh, a blind corner came up and a, <laughs> an old lady came around the corner and um, I had to shove the scooter out of the way and I was launched off the front and I hit her and she flew about half a metre <laughs> because I was going like 20 k's when I hit her. These incidents aren't new, with e-scooters-related hospital visits in Queensland reportedly saw a hop of 279 in 2019 to 877 in 2022. However, Yonis W Senior Lecturer Milad Hagani said that the onus on accidents don't lie in vehicles themselves. The data that we are getting from the major uh, hospitals and uh, trauma centres and um, you know, from medical professionals are indicating that similar to any other city around the world where e-scooters were introduced, the hospital admissions and presentations associated with e-scooters spiked. That is not a big surprise because every mode of transport comes uh, with certain levels of risk of injuries and even death. Uh, We have each year almost 30 to 40 um, deaths related to cyclists, for example. But what is worrying us is the pattern of non-compliance from uh, e-scooter riders. However, with New South Wales banning the public use of these speedy scooters in 2022, Dr. Ilan Novis, superintendent surgeon from St. Vincent's Hospital, found similar instances not with e-scooters, but with Sydney's e-bikes. We've seen a, a massive increase in the number of presentations to St. Vincent's Hospital Emergency Department, uh, particularly in the last 12 months. Uh, patients that have presented include a wide range of injuries from minor cuts and abrasions right up to the severe end of trauma where patients are required to be placed into induced comas, sent to the intensive care unit uh, on ventilators and potentially uh, transferred to the operating theatre for emergency surgery. And there's a recurring element for visitors to the ER. The people who are being admitted are usually in uh, in their late 20s, early 30s. And uh, what is quite notable is that a very, very small portion of these hospital presentations are for the people that were wearing helmets during the ride. Similar concerns exist with e-bikes as well. The number of injuries have increased because there are more bikes available, they're more freely available, and they're seen by the public as a more cost-effective means of transport, particularly at night after you've had a few drinks at the pub or bar. Uh, rather than getting a taxi or a a ride-sharing service, you decide to pick up one of these bikes and ride home. Um, This is on, you know, in the middle of the night. It's very hard to see riders, uh, particularly if you're not wearing the right uh, high-visibility gear. And uh, a lot of these riders are not wearing helmets. They're under the influence of alcohol and navigating Sydney roads Uh, at any time is difficult, and particularly when you're on a bike that you're not familiar with and you don't have the right protective equipment. Peter Burke from We Ride Australia said there needs to be an up-down approach to dealing with e-scooters. E-scooters are a fantastic addition to a transport system, and they should be seen as something to replace short car trips. Because we know in major cities that 50% of uh, car trips are, uh, sorry, half of all trips are less than 5Ks, so this is a great solution to free up cities. But we need better infrastructure. We need better and clearer legislation 
and we need consistent legislation across the federal and the state governments. And we also, there's also obviously benefits of controlling the way scooters are used at night um, by the young men, but it's certainly building the infrastructure that makes it safer and better and easier for people to use them to get around our city. Burke said the infantilisation of e-scooters are the reason for the hostility by decision-makers. One of the challenges is many decision-makers see scooters as a more of a toy rather than an, a, a positive addition to the transport network or the transport system, so they're not willing to actually allow their use. Nevertheless, whether one walks or rides, there's still a sense of camaraderie on Aussie streets. Oh, well, she... She just asked me if I was okay, which was funny because I was asking her if she was okay. Um, but she just kind of got up and she was completely fine. Like, <laughs> But I think that's because I, instead of hitting her with the scooter, I hit her with my own body. With trials of e-scooters in metropolitan Sydney and more Aussies opting for affordable options to travel, we can only hope to see more scooting around. James Montemayor there, ending that report. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcast around the nation on the community radio network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company. Listener.